All right, so you've noticed that we have been sharing stories lately here at this church. And today I've got two stories that I want to share with you. The first is this. It's about a guy. Uh, his name is Robert Coleman, Dr. Robert Coleman. He, uh, he was a seminary professor of mine. This was some time ago now, back in the early 90s. Uh, Robert Coleman is a name you might want to be familiar with. He was part of Billy Graham's inner circle for years. Um, in fact, he was in the room uh, the night of a crusade somewhere when they got the call and Robert Coleman, uh, known to, uh, by his friends as Clem, uh, remembers that the guy who took the call turned around and looked at Billy Graham and looked at Robert Coleman and looked at the others who were in the room there, Cliff Barrows, uh, George Beverly Shea. I mean, these guys were giants in the faith. And he turned around and he said, Dawes is dead. Dawson Trotman, founder of the Navigators, he was part of that inner circle too. And he had been away from the crusade, uh, that particular crusade. He was on a boat in Scroon Lake, New York, and he jumped overboard because a little girl had fallen off the boat. That little girl didn't know how to swim. Dawson Trotman jumped overboard, saved that little girl's life. But here's the thing. He didn't know how to swim either. And he drowned. The giants. Clem Coleman was part of that group. I remember that he wrote perhaps the most influential book on evangelism that's ever been written. The Master Plan of Evangelism, Campus Crusade, used that book for decades to kind of build their whole ministry, campus ministry, upon that book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. Dr. Robert Clem Coleman. There's a lot of stories you can tell. This is what I want to share with you. 25 years ago today, I'm with Dr. Coleman. It's just the two of us. He had asked me for just a little while to be his teaching assistant. And so we would travel around the country and he would preach revival uh, meetings and this sort of thing. We'd be on campus, University of Nebraska, you know, Michigan State University, you know, these sorts of places. And, uh, but we would also go to churches, big churches, and he'd preach revival and he'd start preaching. And on that day, he's preaching hard. And uh, when, when he got going, you know, he'd start flat-footing. And he's, you know, preaching to the rhythm of his own beat. And he starts shouting. And the globs of saliva that would come out of the man's mouth, I mean, you, you, seriously. I mean, you would want one of those, like, SWAT shields in the front rows. You know, because you could see it all the way up top. It was like he was doing it on purpose. Shielding yourself. But the people would come up in that tradition. They'd come up to the altar. And not just for physical healing, but to get their souls right with God. And they wanted to do that, and they would just pour out of the pews. And it was awesome. So there was a long, full day of that. And I'm taking it all in, and at the end of the day, they dropped the two of us off at our uh, motel there in Venice, Florida, February 4th, 1993. And they drop us off at the motel late in the day, and we're pretty tired. We haven't had dinner. 
And uh, Dr. Coleman says to me, well, let's, Nate, let's, let's go over and get something at, at Burger King. And I'm sitting there with him at, at, at Burger King, and he starts to tell me the story of the 40 fools of Sebastia. Do you even know? He says, Nate, have you ever heard the story of the 40 fools? I was like, no, Dr. Coleman, I've not heard that story before. And he proceeds to tell me about these men in ancient Rome and, you know, they're up at this mountain fortress somewhere, probably in the Balkans. Uh, it's wintertime, and Caesar has decreed that everyone's, you know, all the legionnaires have got to worship him and, and testify that he alone is God, Caesar. And these 40 men who are Christian in this particular platoon or whatever they called them back then said, no, we're not going to do that. And so the commander who knew the value of those particular soldiers, they were good guys and they were good fighters. And he said, just please, you don't have to, just, just utter the words because the, the penalty for, for refusing this command is death. And Coleman is, is he's telling me this as I'm eating my Whopper. And he starts to cry. And, and you know, I put my whopper down. <laughs> and, I'm, and, and, and I'm listening to this. And he says, they marched those 40 men, Nate. They marched them out onto the ice. Buck naked. And over the course of the evening... You know, as they started to die, they could be heard singing hymns, and it just faded through the night. That commander loved those guys so much, he said, at any time, if you want to recant, I'll keep the sauna hot, and you just make it back. One guy crawled the shore and spilled himself into the sauna, and the guard who was watching was so convicted in his spirit that Jesus Christ is the only way. He took off his armor and he walked out on the ice and died. And, and Coleman is, is crying as he's telling me this story. I'm like, I can't even finish my food now. <laughs> we get back to the motel. And this was just, it's, it's still fairly early. I'm, I'm 27 years old, and Dr. Coleman goes into the bathroom. He comes walking out, um, you know, Venice, Florida, February 4th, but Venice, Florida, all the same, full-length flannel pajamas, and, 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 and he, he's as tall as I am, walks out like this, full-length flannel pajamas, Nate, let's pray. It's, it's about 8.30 p.m. Like, yes, sir. He gets down on his knees, you know, at his bed, and he looks at me. I'm like, I'm not going to kneel next to you, but so, so I kneel next to my bed, you know. And he prays. He prays for about 15 minutes. Then I pray. I'm like, okay, Lord, help me to pray for 15 minutes. <laughs> and then he says, all right, I'll see you in the morning. Turns out the light. It's 9 p.m. I'm 27 years old. I'm in Venice, Florida. I'm like, you know what, I could, I could go for a run right now or I've got some work to do, you know, some projects I could work on. He's like, no, it's, it's time to go to bed. Yes, sir. <laughs> Here's the thing. I, I remember as I'm drifting off in my bed, the curtains were open, 
It's dark outside, but the lights in the parking lot are on, and so I can see Dr. Coleman and his silhouette laying on the bed there, and about half an hour goes by, and I can't sleep, and then I hear this. Yes, Lord. He'd been praying the whole time. And I just want to say, that is a life built on trust in God. For Dr. Coleman, it was not these sporadic periods or seasons of desperation in his life, but it was every day, every hour, I want to walk with the living God. It was a way of life for him. And I believe it is still. I have a very good friend, lifelong friend, who is uh, chair of the missions department at Asbury Seminary in Lexington, Kentucky. That's where Dr. Coleman has retired. He was still teaching well into his 80s. And the last time I talked to my friend Greg, I said, how is Dr. Coleman? And he, he said this. He said, it's, it's actually very sad, but the students don't sign up for his classes anymore because they just don't know who he is. You know, his wife of however many years, Marietta, died probably two, three years ago now. I can remember Dr. Coleman just loved to laugh so hard. I mean, he would roll on the floor of his own living room in front of others that he had had over. I remember laughing that hard in front of Carl F.H. Henry, another giant in the faith. And his wife, Marietta, would just sit in her chair and after a while, just looking at her husband, roll on the floor in laughter. He's laughing so hard. You, know, you would just see her shoulders kind of shake a little bit. She loved him. She enjoyed him. Dr. Coleman and a life. Trust in God as a way of life. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Second story, Hezekiah. And open up not to Isaiah first. You can open up and put your finger long about Isaiah 36. But open first to 2 Kings 18. And we're going to look at his life and see how it is that he also trusted God as a way of life. We're going to look at four episodes this morning. We're going to look at them quick. We're going to have to run, you know, to squeeze in communion. We've got bad weather out there, you know. Thanks for, by the way, way to, way to be brave and to turn out for, you know, despite the weather. But we're going to have to... Uh, Move along. So we're looking at, this is second, did I say second Kings or second Chronicles? I said Kings, good. Yeah, that's right. Kings, second Kings, second Kings 18. And you're gonna have verses three to four here in a moment, but I wanna read just verses one and two to start. It says this, in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, man we're talking about this morning, the man at the end of, uh, you know, really the first section of the book of Isaiah, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, 
king of Judah began to reign. Let me say this about Hezekiah. He's 25 years old. We're going to find that here in just next phrase. You would not have wanted Ahaz for a dad. The man was evil. His practices were abominable. Hezekiah survived his childhood. Many, I'm guessing most of his brothers, maybe all of his brothers, didn't. Because his dad, Ahaz, literally sacrificed them, human sacrifice of his own sons to these pagan demon gods. How would you like that kind of a man for a dad? Okay, we'll keep reading. He was 25 years old when he, Hezekiah, began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His, mother na- his mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And, and that's all you know about Abby, who, who, whoever she was, unknown. It's tough to even guess. That's all you hear about her. But I want to say, um, pr- pr- praise God for unknown but faithful moms. And, and, and you know when I remember, uh, it, you go inside the prison system, and I'm talking more, um, you know, maximum security, you know, the heavy, uh, you know, Rahway, Sing Sing, Danamora, you know, the, where you've got, you know, your most notorious serial killers, they're all on death row, you know, that kind of thing. And you find out from these guys who have had a genuine conversion and have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, they have plenty of time to study the Bible, and these guys know the Bible uh, better than I do, right, Eddie? I mean, better than, than you do and better than Trent, you know, if he's in the room. They're studying all day long, and they love Jesus. And you ask them, you know, what, what was it that, that, you know, happened in your life? You know what they say? So often what they say again and again and again, my mom prayed for me. I went off and I killed however many people. My mom prayed for me. My grandma prayed for me. So thank God for unknown moms Thank God for Abby. I'm guessing that we will meet her. We'll get to meet her someday. Verse 3. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, the big thing. He did what was right. He didn't do what was uh, gray, what was maybe acceptable. He did what was right. He didn't do what was safe, necessarily. He did what was right. He just did the right thing. And you see the trust already being generated in a 25-year-old guy. But he's choosing to do the right thing. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that David, his father, had done, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. They had a name for it. (laughs) 
And they're worshiping this thing that had been created. You, we, you can read about it in Numbers chapter 21, and the people were on the road, and, uh, and they got rebellious, they're complaining, and it made God angry. And so they see, sent snakes into the community, venomous snakes, to bite the people, and the people had begun to die. And so once they had begun to die, then they run back to Moses, oh, we don't want to die, and so save it, do something. And God says, erect this bronze serpent, fashion it, put it up, and anyone who looks at it will live. That's something that Jesus, in John chapter 3, famous chapter where he says you must be born again, Jesus references that same serpent and says, hey, just like the serpent was raised up, so I'm going to need to be raised up and so forth. Jesus references that. But the people in Isaiah's day had taken this and they had said, you know, there's something uh, just about this particular statue or whatever it is, and it is uh, um, spellbinding. And we love it. And we love to go and we love to look at it. And, and it just, it, it really excites us. And so we're going to get in our worship just as far as that serpent. And we're going to, our affections are going to surround that serpent so much that we're going to actually, we're going to give it a name. And we're going to say, hey, you know, we're going to have a night of worship Friday night over at West Shore Free Church, and we're going to go and we're going to worship this bronze snake. Is what's going on there? It sounds ludicrous to us, but but you look at that. By the way, behind a new looks like a new black wall, the cross. Do, do we worship the cross as Christians? No. We do not worship the cross. We worship the one who hung on the cross because of what he achieved on the cross. But but we do not worship the cross. At 25, Hezekiah had been given enough wisdom to allow the Lord to define his righteousness. He trusted God as a way of life. Young man, he trusted God as a way of life to define his morality. I'm going to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. I'm not going to do what's right in the eyes of most people. You know, I'm not going to poll the people. I'm not going to do what's right in the eyes of my friends. I'm not going to do what's right in the eyes of myself. I'm going to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And and, and I'm going to make sure that I don't start worshiping means to God as the end. And I'm not going to have my people either get stuck worshiping Nehushtan when we have to press through. We have to press through even even a worship band, right? Don't we appreciate George's worship, his leading? You know, most Sundays, do we come here? He's got a team of people who are faithful skilled, they're serving us. But, but if we're coming to, for, for this as the end rather than the means to the end, then we're off track. Th- this, 
is meant to lead us to him. We have to reach God as we worship. Okay, so he, as part of his life and his trust in the Lord, wanted for the Lord to define his morality. And as the Lord did that, that's what he practiced. He practiced righteousness as God defined it. And it was full of trust in God. It wasn't popular move. Okay, we gotta get going. Um, flip, flip over to uh, Isaiah 36 now. Isaiah 36. Sennacherib invades Judah. And Trent had spoken a little bit about that last week. And I guess it was last summer and we had had this same text, uh, maybe in Kings or Chronicles, I forget which, but he would have shared a little bit about it then. But Sennacherib comes, he invades Judah, he sends 185,000 men against the city. What? So here comes the Rabshakeh, Sennacherib's representative, and in verse 6, he says this. This is Isaiah 36, verse 6. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So, so you remember these, the lies that Trent was talking about last week? Lies of power, lies of position, Lies of pleasure are rooted right here in these verses because this is the taunting and the reasoning with which the Rabshakeh is trying to trip up the people of Israel. And they're speaking Hebrew. They're talking in English. They want to make sure that all the people along the, the battlements happen to hear what's, what, you know, the offer that's being made to save their lives. In verse seven, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Oh my word. He won't let you worship the way you want to worship. And doesn't that just steam you? You're an American after all and you have rights. And those rights are grounded in you as an individual and whatever you happen to want. As long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. And who does Hezekiah think he is? Who do you think you are to listen to Hezekiah? And Hezekiah would have heard that also. And I have to believe that he would turn to the Lord and said, well, what about me? Uh, you know, I know you've made me king, but I know that that's a pretty good pitch just outside the front gate as to how to tear me and this whole kingdom down. 
And I wonder if in that moment he was tempted to look out for himself and to say, you know what, I'm really sorry. I mean, you're right. Who am I? I guess I was, I guess I was kind of arrogant. And, you know, I'm kind of a little bit of a bully with my kingship. And so maybe I need to back off a little bit. You know, just let's wait till Friday and we'll, we'll try to uh, construct the Asherim again and we'll bring back the high places and just hold on, but don't, let's not surrender to Sennacherib. I think we can still make it. He's not looking to protect himself. He's looking to be faithful to the Lord. Now, it was a moment of desperation, but this is what he did. I'm going to keep reading in chapter 37 now. 37, just flip the page. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. He knew the God he was calling on. It's our first value here at the church, you know, to know God for who he is. Hezekiah knew God for who he is. He's the God of Israel, enthroned above the church. He's still enthroned. Right now he's enthroned. Right now, and the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the cherubim are there now. Right now. You are God, you alone. You're not one of many. You're not one of two. You're one. Alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth. Sovereign. You've made heaven and earth creator. Incline your ear. Open your eyes. Hear the mockery of Sennacherib. Truly. They have laid waste to these other nations, but those other nations aren't your nations. Yeah, you're sovereign, but you know what? You've chosen us, and so the way that you deal with us says everything about who you are. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. At the end of the day, that's the... Not just the best, but I think the only reason with which to go to God and plead has everything to do with your reputation. You bring glory to you by the way you interact and and show up for us. All right. Flip the page, chapter 38. Crisis. Have to move along here. In those days, verse 1, in those days Hezekiah became sick. Down in verse 3, because he was sick, he cried out to the Lord, please, O Lord. He didn't didn't slink away because he was depressed. He didn't rail back at God because he's just so angry. He didn't go to God with this attitude of entitlement. He didn't make demands. He just said, please. And he poured out his heart because he had some kind of an illness. 
And then afterwards, it says in verse 9, a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. And he says in verse 13, I calmed myself until morning. You know, it's a, it's a psalm, really, what he's written here in chapter 38. And it's full of lament, but it's also full of praise. And in verse 13, he says, I calmed myself until morning. So it's, it's Hezekiah, and he's alone at night, and it's dark. And you might see a little note there that says, well, in some versions it says, at least in the Targum, it says uh, that, that he cried all night. I tend to think it was both. He's trying to calm himself, and there was probably an hour, 45 minutes in there, uh, you know, that he's feeling calm, but then it starts to resurface again, and he starts into tears again, and he's going back and forth. He's how you felt. It's how I felt when we've been sick. You know? Yeah, I remember the year ago, you know, I'm at home recovering from robotic prostatectomy. They got all the cancer, they say. Prostate was saturated with cancer. But I remember those nights before that operation. Listen to this in verse 13. It says, like a lion, he breaks all my bones. Day to night, you bring me to an end. He's talking about God. And he's older here. But do we have, it, do we have room to regard God rightly, to say that in his sovereignty and in his love, because he disciplines those whom he loves, that he is the God who delivers us and he is the God who breaks our bones. That's what he's saying here. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones from day to night. You bring me to an end. Verse 15, and he himself has done it. He's spoken to me and said so. Verse 15, and I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. He's being honest there. And in verse 16, O oh Lord, by these things men live and in all these is the life of my spirit. Oh, restore me to health and make me live. God, I don't want to die. Behold, it was my welfare. It was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. I, want, I wanted to get well, but I wasn't getting well. And it started to make me angry. But in love you have delivered my life, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. I, I love that you see his, he wants longer life on the planet. You know, he, heal me physically, but, but I'm starting to understand that what's more important than my body is my soul. And so thank God you're forgiving me of my sins. My soul's going to live forever. 
God created souls that way. Two destinations, regardless of where you go, heaven or hell, you're there forever for the rest of your life, and that life doesn't end. But these things are occurring to him, and he's writing about them. The Lord will save me, verse 20. And the question of will we turn to God as our only Savior, even as he wounds us. What? Even as he wounds us, will we turn to him? I mean, God said, Moses sang, Moses, you know, wrote that song of worship to the Lord in Deuteronomy 32. He quotes God from the first person. See now that I am he. See now that I, even I, am he and there is no God with me. I kill. This is Yahweh. This is the God and Father. This is Jesus. I kill. And I make alive. I wound. And I heal. Neither is there anyone who can deliver you out of my hand, whether I'm wounding or I'm healing, you're mine. You're secure right here. And you can trust me. Right, right here, you can trust me. God gave him 15 more years. Flip over to last chapter 39. Chapter 39. The envoys have come from Babylon. Hezekiah has sinned and opened up the storehouses and said, look at everything I've got. Rather than give glory to God, he kind of made much of himself. Isaiah shows up and says, this was not the right thing to do. And so God is going to respond to you this way. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So that's not a good report. <laughs> you go ahead and laugh at that. That's not a good report. You don't want your sons to become eunuchs. <laughs> this is how Hezekiah responded last verse. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, or that is, he said to himself, there will be peace and security in my days. Where are we at in our hearts? It is one thing to present to Isaiah. It is one thing to present to one another. The word of the Lord is good. And then a completely different thing to say right here, where no one but God can see, at least it ain't going to happen to me.
I don't know how Hezekiah wrapped up his days. I know that we like to say that there were good kings in the southern kingdom in Israel. That's true, relatively speaking. Every last king blew it. Every king blew it, including Hezekiah, including even Josiah, Jehoshaphat, all of them, all of them blew it at the end of the day. All of them except one. And I'm not talking about David, but in the line of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one. Hezekiah wrapped it up by saying, at least it won't happen to me. Jesus wrapped it up in the garden of Gethsemane saying, I'm not, this is very hard and if it be your will, remove the cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so I'm going to march and rather than look out for me, I'm going to make sure that I go and hang on that so that everyone else will benefit. That's Jesus. But where are we at in our hearts? Let's take just a moment now. We're gonna step into communion. Bow your head if you need to, close your eyes. But ask yourself, where am I at in my heart regarding my life of trust in you, Father? Where am I at in my heart? We're gonna be going to 1 Corinthians 11 and We'll read there, you can read this later on, that the call for self-examination, see if in fact you're inside a saving relationship with me. Examine yourself, see where you're really at in your heart so that if what's in your heart is the word of the Lord is good, I want Jesus, I am in Christ. I don't want sin to compromise our relationship. Examine yourself, he says in 1 Corinthians 11. It says there also, uh, some of you have died. God killed them in the church in Corinth because they didn't self-examine the way they should have. Whoa. So let's take some time now, some serious time, just for a moment or two. Examine, and we'll have communion. Father, we're wanting to come before you, each of us, right now in his or her own heart.
We ask you to search us and know us. We ask you to reveal to us anything that has gotten in the way of our relationship with you. We want to confess that to you and ask you to forgive us for that. Father, we are forever grateful that we can enter into this supper in order to remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that was given for us, shed for us, so that he took what we deserved. And that because of what he has done on the cross, we can have an everlasting relationship with you. Thank you. Thank you. Help us to remember now and to not forget, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.